Second Corinthians chapter, excuse me, Second Chronicles. Let's try that again. Second Chronicles chapter 14. As we continue our study through the book of Second Chronicles together, we now come to the reign of another king in Judah, and that is King Asa. We saw the conclusion of Abijah's reign last time, and Abijah was a king who certainly made some mistakes and did not do uh, things pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, and yet nonetheless, uh, Asa ends up being one of the kings that we have in our historical record of Chronicles that was a good and a godly king, the Bible tells us of him. And again, just another reminder, we always want to take note of these things, that sometimes there would be a good king that would walk in the ways of the Lord, no doubt would be a good example to his children, to his nation, and yet then he would have a son who would come up after him as a successor, and that good king would have a rebellious son, a son who would turn away from the Lord and walk in evil and sinful ways and exercise his free will. And despite the good upbringing and the great exposure to how to live righteously, uh, that son would choose to rebel and to walk in his own ways of selfishness and sinfulness and no guarantee how great a job a parent can do. That child still has a free will. But that works as well in a, in a positive light also. And there are times we see in the Bible where there was an evil king, a king who didn't do what was good or right in the eyes of the Lord, may have participated in all kinds of ungodly practices and idolatry, and no doubt because of that was a very poor example to his children, to his family. Uh, exposed his children to sinful things and uh, things that would defile the mind and heart and spirit of a young child growing up under that as a parent didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. And yet, as we see here with Asa, that child can choose to break the pattern. And that child can choose to exercise their free will despite what they were exposed to, despite what they may be more inclined to because they were uh, kind of exposed to ungodliness and temptation and evil. That child can choose to exercise their free will to say, I don't want to walk in the patterns of my father. I don't want to walk in ways that are sinful and destructive and defiled. I want to choose to live differently. Uh, and that opportunity exists for anyone and that's a great reminder for all of us because it does not matter what may have been your upbringing your experiences and i don't want to diminish in any way discompassionately that those things don't have an influence upon us they don't make it difficult and cause challenges and things we have to overcome and the baggage we accumulate emotionally and mentally psychologically and spiritually uh, but those things do not have to hinder us from being able to walk in proper fellowship with God and experience the absolute best that God has for us. Uh, we can choose uh, to walk with the Lord, to break patterns and chains, and to experience absolutely wonderful things in the will of the Lord. That opportunity is available to anybody doesn't matter what your background or your upbringing was. You have full opportunity to walk in God's will and experience the best. And that's what we see Asa doing here. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 14 tells us that Abijah rested with his fathers. They buried him there in the city of David in Jerusalem. And then Asa, his son, reigned in his place as a successor. And in his days, notice, the land was quiet for 10 years. Years. Now take note as we go through the beginning part of Asa's reign here, we have these continual 
repetitious references by the Holy Spirit that the land was quiet, the land experienced rest. And take note of that because those are specific terms given in connection to living in a way that's righteous, living in a way that pleases God, removing sin and walking in righteous ways attached to that. Uh, the, the, the description is it was quietness, calm, peacefulness, rest. Again, uh, the prophet Ezekiel uh, and the prophet Isaiah and others speak to us continually of how when there was sin in the lives of the people and in the nation, uh, there, God would say that there is no rest, saith the Lord, for the wicked. But like a troubled sea, that, that's the experience. When somebody doesn't walk in the ways of God, uh, there's never any sense of real rest. It's just constant turmoil and struggles. And they, they kind of live from one you know catastrophe to the next catastrophe. And they just, life is just this constant roller coaster because when you walk outside of God's ways, it doesn't work. And you just create you know, own self-inflicted trials. And, and yet the opposite of that is true as well, that when we choose to walk in righteousness, you know, the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that if a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And it is truly amazing how when we walk in ways that please the Lord, how God can bring honestly, and who doesn't want a little bit of this? Just some peace and quiet. <laughs> you know, I, I, mean, I don't know about you, but one of the clear distinguishing marks I'll never forget, and I accepted the Lord a month after I graduated high school, but even after a good, you know, 17, 18 years of not walking with Jesus and just being a red-blooded American sinner just like you, doing things that were outside of God's design, living self-willed and selfishly and sinfully, uh, you, you just there's never a sense of just peace and quiet on the inside. You're just never at rest. There's always this agitated, unsettled, and, and difficult experience that goes on on the inside. There's never a rest of the soul. And that's what God wants to give to us. He wants to give it to us individually. He wants to give it to us, I think, in our families, just some peace and quiet when the presence of the Lord is ruling. And it happens on a larger level, on a national level. You know, the Bible tells us that, you know, that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach uh, to any people. So because Asa was, notice verse 2, a king that did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. That's why the land was quiet. Asa's life was characterized as a man and as a king in the way that he was a leader. By verse 2, take notice, someone who did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. In other words, he lived in a way whereby he contemplated what he did do and didn't do in consideration of, is this right in my eyes? No, he made his decisions, is this good and right in the eyes of the Lord? Would God see this as right? Would God see this as good or would God see that as wrong and God see that as bad? Because honestly, our perspective a lot of times can be skewed and, and we have an angle on how we see things and sometimes we kind of see through rose-colored lenses and, and the Bible says there's a way that seems right in the eyes of man, but the end thereof is death. And every way seems right in our eyes, the book of Proverbs tells us. But it's so important that we say, Lord, what's right in your eyes? 
not even what's right in the eyes of the world. And that can be another great mistake that we make, not only our own perspective, but we, we kind of want to line things up. Well, according to what everybody else in the world does, I mean, this is kind of right in the eyes of the world. This is, I mean, everybody else thinks this is tolerable or acceptable or appropriate. And we kind of want to justify, but the right way to do things is say, Lord, what's right in your eyes? What's good in your eyes? Maybe you're trying to figure out something right now. My encouragement to you is, you know, let that be the filter. Lord, what would be good in your eyes? What would be right in your sight as far as how you want me to live my life or respond to this situation or make this decision? He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a characterizing mark of a righteous life, how you can live right in God's sight. Notice verse three, it begins to describe in some of the ways how he did that, carrying out his practice. He did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, verse three, for he, notice, removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places, and he broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images, referring to the idolatrous practices that were going on in the land things that were dishonoring God, that were immoral, that were destructive to the lives of the people, worshiping other gods and foreign deities. And you notice the strong language. He removed those things. He broke down those things and he cut down those things. That is, he was very radical in bringing about, you might say, moral reform, spiritual reform. These are some of the reforms that he made under his rulership and administration. He came in as a national leader and decided, you know what? One thing I do want to do, I may not do everything right, but I want to at least try and do what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord for the nation. And so God, what's displeasing in your eyes? What are we doing right now as a nation that's not good? And he found those things and he said, you know what? We're going to make some reforms here. We're going to eliminate and take radical measures to make reforms to get that which is displeasing to God out of the life of our nation. And he began to make these kind of reforms, removing what was sinful and evil. And verse four, it says, he also then commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to observe the law and the commandments. So he not only removed what was not good, he tried to reinstitute what would be in the best interest of having God's approval and God's blessing and pleasure. So he encouraged quite strongly, it says, commanded the people from his role of authority to seek the Lord. Well, that's a good command to make as a national leader. Here's a command. Everybody in the nation, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. You seek the Lord for yourself and you seek the Lord for your family. Let's seek the Lord together as a nation as to what would be best for our country and our people. It says he commanded the nation to seek the Lord and notice also to observe or to obey God's word. To tell people, look, we need to get back to obeying the scripture. Don't observe the way you feel. Don't observe your thoughts and observe what everybody else is doing. No, observe and obey and live out what the word of God says. If we do that, he says, that's what's going to be best for us in our life. Verse five, he also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom. Here it is again, as I said, and the kingdom was quiet under him, under his rulership. It brought peace when he made those decisions and led in that way. Verse six, and he built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. There it is again. He had no war in those years. It was quite a peaceful time because notice why verse six, here's why, because the Lord had given him rest. 
Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them and towers and gates and bars while the land is yet before us because we have sought the Lord our God and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Take notice. When you're not living outside of God's design and you're not having to constantly deal with calamities from doing what's wrong and that's broken and doesn't work because it's immoral and improper and dysfunctional and you're not having to give your constant attention to picking up you know, the pieces from the next calamity or from this mess or having to fight the next battle or war because you offended this person or you made yourself vulnerable because you dishonored God as a people. When you're doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, peace and quiet comes and you can actually do what? You can actually make progress. It says there in verse 7 that during his time, because things were quiet and peaceful, he said to the people, look, let's build. Let's move forward. Let's make progress. Let's move in a forward direction and help the nation to be established and stronger. It says during his time they were building and verse 7 tells us that during that time they built and prospered. The idea is God blessed them. God blessed the things that they were doing which was righteous. And I think it's fair to say when you look at these first you know, six, seven verses that righteous living produces peace and quiet. That, that when you do two things, when you repent of sin and you turn away from sin, that brings peace and quiet. And when you live righteous in the sight of God, that just brings a measure of peace and quiet into your own life, brings it into your family life. It's amazing how the, the storm can calm down when a family says, look, we need to rid ourselves of the wrong things we've been doing and get right in the sight of the Lord and do what's right and live righteously as a family or as a married couple. It's amazing how it just brings peace and quiet and kind of a calm comes back into a family experience and the same on a national level. And this is what they were experiencing. God was honoring. God was blessing. They were building and prospering in this time because they were doing what was pleasing to the Lord. I love the reference in verse 6 and 7 to how it says the Lord had given, it says verse 6, him rest. And then again, verse 7, we have sought the Lord. And notice, as we have sought him, he, that is the Lord, has given us rest. Repeated two times there recognizing we're seeking the Lord and he's the one giving to us rest as a, as a blessing of that. This reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 from a New Testament perspective. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden or burdened down and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus gives the same invitation to us in regards to seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, are, are you weighed down? Do you find yourself burdened? And again, the idea there isn't weighed down and burdened and weary and exhausted in a physical sense. He uses an analogy like an animal that was weighed down with the burden of the yoke and trying to strain to pull forward and just wearied and exhausted because it's trying to pull a load that's just beyond its capacity. And maybe sometimes the animal trying to pull the load not being cooperative to what the master is trying to direct it to do so it's just straining and making it harder for itself and jesus says unfortunately this can happen in people's souls he's talking about a rest for the soul an inward rest not a physical rest 
He's talking about an inward rest where a person is wearied inwardly. And Jesus says that happens when a person gets their life unyoked with me. When they're living outside of relationship, cooperation, close fellowship with me, then that's when we start striving and straining. And, and we're, we're, we get ourselves in a way where sometimes we put a yoke upon ourselves that's not even the yoke that Jesus has for us. And we're trying to strive in this way or pull this or make that happen or plow forward in this. And the Lord is saying, that's going to really wear you out. You're taking burdens upon yourself and you're going to wear. And so Jesus says, just come to me. Come to me, he says, when you're weary and burdened. When you feel like that, he says, this is the best thing to do. Stop everything. And start focusing on just fellowship with me, coming to me, seek me, spend time with me when you feel wearied and burdened and like that. And Jesus says, I want to give you my rest and and I want you to take my yoke upon you. Just get yoked up with me and then we'll do this thing together. And then Jesus does all the heavy lifting and he says, you'll begin to find out that you'll find rest for your souls because when you're yoked together with the Lord, you may be pulling a heavy load still, but it's easy in the burden's light because it's his burden. And, and he's the one helping us in the process and we're just kind of walking in fellowship with him because he can give rest. You know, what a wonderful thing. There's no better thing than receive the rest internally, the rest for your soul that Jesus wants to give so that you're not wearied on the inside. Verse eight, it says, and Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears from Benjamin and 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows. And all of these were mighty men of our. So he had an army of a little over 500,000 men in Judah. But look what he faces. Verse nine, this circumstance. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian came out against him with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and he came to Marishah. So he now faces an army. He's attacked by the Ethiopians who put themselves in battle array and he's outnumbered two to one. He's got an army of a little over 500,000 but they now show up with an army with 300 chariots and a million men in a standing army. Can you imagine the size of an army of a million men on the battlefield? So he is now facing something that from you know, his perspective is an impossibility. How in the world am I going to overcome a million-man army? This is too big for me. There's no way I can solve this. There's no way I can overcome this or deal with this. This is a problem and a situation and circumstances much bigger than I'm able to handle or do anything with. So what does he do? Well, great example, verse 10. So Asa went out against him, which is interesting. He didn't run and flee. He didn't say, well, look, this is impossible. So if it's impossible, I give up. I'm running away. That's sometimes what we're tempted to do in the flesh. We face something that's a human impossibility. And then we all at times face our own million man army or our Goliath, if you would, like David or whatever it may be. Just that thing that to us, it's gigantic. It's impossible. Maybe it's a circumstance, maybe it's a, a, you know, a, a relationship issue that's really become messy, maybe it's a financial situation, maybe it's the, you know, uh, some diagnosis of a health condition, Wh- whatever it may be, but we face some, and that's, it's like that million man army. And, and we're tempted in the flesh and the devil would whisper in our ear, look, well, that's just, that's impossible. 
There's no way that's impossible. Just check out, run, do what you got to do, escape. But, but that's not what Asa does. Asa continues to walk forward. He continues to do what's right. Was it scary? Certainly. Was it overwhelming? Absolutely. It's a million-man army. But it says Asa went out. He kept walking forward. And that's what we must do even when we face things that are too big for us because that's how we see how big God is, right? Look what Asa does. Asa went out against him, confronted the situation, and they set troops in battle array in the valley of Zephyrah at Mereshah. And Asa, here's what he did. Take note of, of his lesson to us. Asa cried out to the Lord his God. He prayed. He went forward and he prayed. He engaged the situation, but he did it in total dependency upon the Lord. He cried out to the Lord saying, Lord, notice, it is nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power, help us, O Lord our God, for we rest, the idea is we rely on, on you and in your name we go out against this multitude O lord you are our god do not let man prevail against you he says lord uh this is too much for us this million man army it's impossible it's intimidating and we are going to be overcome but he says lord it's nothing for you nothing's too hard for you he says lord whether we have a, a military of 500,000, whether we have a military of 5 million or only whether we got a military of 5,000, Lord, he says, nothing's too hard for you, whether with many or few. Again, Jesus was the one who told us that with God, all things are possible. The emphasis being on the word with. With God. If our lives are with God, nothing becomes impossible and all things become possible because with God, you got a majority now. It doesn't matter what the odds are of what you're facing. Because difficulty does not equate the same way on God's level as it does on our level as human beings, right? The Bible tells us in Jeremiah, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. It's not as if certain things are more difficult for God than other things. That's how we deal with things on a human level. Oh, that's more difficult for God. Nothing even is difficult. <laughs> it's not like God says, well, wow, a million men. Now that is more difficult than an army of 750,000 there. I'm glad you cried out to me. We're going to have to come up with a battle plan. Things aren't even more difficult for God. Things aren't even difficult for God. We make that mistake as human beings. And right, I can show you how we many times kind of flesh that out, though we may not always recognize it, is let's say, for example, you get a, you know, a, a, uh, an unexpected medical bill of uh, $59 because your copay didn't cover everything or you win, you go, oh man, $59. Right? You're right now, it's going to be tight at the end of the month. There's an, oh, 59 bucks. And Lord, just provide, provide, Lord. Just, and, right? So we, brief prayer, we write our $59 check. Lord, I know you provide. Thank you, Jesus. A month later, you get a bill in the mail. Maybe you have some medical issue that goes on. Somebody goes in the hospital. Now you got a bill for $59,000. Isn't it amazing how the prayer changes? Oh, Lord God! And you call together all the elders and you have three nights of prayer and fasting at your house, right? Because, Lord, this is 59000 You see all the zeros on that, Lord? $59,000. Now, of course, I'm being facetious, but is it more difficult for God 
to provide $59,000 than it is for God to provide $59. No, it's really not. For us, it's more difficult, right? So we equate things on their level of difficulty. You, you come to somebody and, hey, would you pray for me? I have a, uh, have a headache. Well, sure, yeah, Lord, just pray you bless this brother, take away his headache. Somebody comes to you, would you pray for me? I just found out that I have stage four cancer. Oh, Lord. And then, right, and then we, we pray. It's like we raise our voice. We get way more intense as if somehow God's kind of like us going, yeah, because that, that is much more difficult. And I'm not making light of major difficulties compared to minor difficulties. I'm trying to help us understand that we serve a God with whom nothing is impossible. So for God, it doesn't matter if it's a million-man army or it's a hundred-man army. For us, it feels like that. But we have to remember God's limitless. God has all power. There is nothing too hard for the Lord, and God wants us to rely on him in that way. So he says, Lord, it's nothing. That's his heart. It's nothing for you, he says, to help with many or with few. And he just says, Lord, so help us. (laughs) Lord, we're relying on you. We're resting on you. (laughs) Lord, help. Help us. And don't let man prevail over us, Lord, because then they're going to say that our God isn't real. Lord, for your honor, do something awesome. Because, Lord, your reputation is at stake. And I love Asa's heart. He wanted God to have an opportunity to show himself powerful, that God would get all the glory. That's, that's why we want to trust the Lord and give him a chance to work and rely upon him. Because when we rely upon him, it becomes an occasion where he can show himself powerful in response to our prayer and reliance on him. And then God gets lots of good press. He gets lots of glory. And people see how powerful and loving and amazing God is. So he says, Lord, help us. And look at verse 12. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah. And the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown and they could not recover for they were broken before the Lord and his army. And then they carried away very much spoil and they defeated all the cities around Gerar for the fear of the Lord came upon them and they plundered all the cities for there was exceedingly much spoil in them. And they also attacked the livestock enclosures and carried off the sheep and camels in abundance and then returned after the battle back to Jerusalem. So take notice, what did they do? They cry out to the Lord in prayer, dependent prayer. Lord, we are relying on you. We believe that you can do this. We don't know how and we can't, but we're trusting you, God, to work in a miraculous, powerful way. They make a sincere, humble prayer and faith and commit this to the Lord as they cry out to him. And God answers. What did God do? I don't know. Verse 12 just says he struck them and verse 13 says he just overthrew them. And who cares how God does it, right? (laughs) As long as he does it. I mean, what did he do? I don't know. It just says he struck them and overthrew them. And and let God do it however he wants to do it. Doesn't matter where the provision comes from. God can bring it from this funnel, from that funnel. It's God, right? And we praise the Lord. It doesn't matter. Well, well, how's the circumstance going to work? Maybe I should give God some suggestions. God, if you would just do this, if you could do that and make this happen that way. And and somehow God's going, wow, that's a good idea. But I'm not going to use it now because it was your idea, right? (laughs) And we tell God what to do. God just does how he wants to do it because the battle belongs to the Lord. And sometimes it's the greatest when we just say, Lord, just help. Help, Lord. 
Just help bring victory so that we're not defeated, Lord, for your sake. Help us. You can do it. And then God just does it in his own way. He overcomes the situation for us and he overthrows it. And we can just say, well, that's amazing. I, we don't know what happened. <laughs> All we knew is there was a million man army yesterday and today they're gone. And God took care of it for us. And, and that's kind of a good thing. Like, we don't really know what happened. It was just God. Just God did it. And he gets all the glory that way. And notice it says as well in our verses, in verse 13 and 14, how they carried away very much spoil. The end of verse 13, they carried away very much spoil. The idea is they were enriched as the result of this battle. Not only did they overcome, but God actually enriched their lives on top of it. And sometimes, folks, when we go through the hard things that we do and, and it's difficult and we got to cry out to the Lord and we go through difficult experiences in our own battles, right? You may be facing battles tonight and maybe you're crying out to the Lord for help in the battle. One thing I can tell you, not only will the Lord help you to overcome in your life battles if you look to him, but he'll also enrich your life as the result because it's through our hardships that our lives are enriched spiritually. Because we press into the Lord and we develop character and we become more rooted in the Lord because we realize, Lord, I can't do it without you. So if you're going through something hard, know the Lord can use that to enrich you. You'll be more enriched as a person on the other side of that if you stay with the Lord through the battle. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon in power a prophet who's going to speak to the people and he went out to meet Asa verse 2 and he said to King Asa hear me Asa and all Judah and Benjamin the Lord is with you while you are with him if you seek him he will be found by you but if you forsake him he will forsake you so here comes this caution this warning now a prophetic word from this man it says here who comes under the Spirit's inspiration to speak to the people. It says, verse 2, that this man goes out to meet Asa, Azariah, because the Spirit of the Lord is upon his life and he's got a word from the Lord. And when you read verse 2, does it not pretty clearly sound like he's kind of not only giving him an encouragement, but also a warning? He says, the Lord will be with you if you're with him. And if you seek him, he'll be found by you. He'll reveal himself to you. When you seek him, he'll show himself to you. But he says, but be aware and be warned. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Now, the idea there of the Lord forsaking, you know, the Bible tells us that God's presence and love and care is towards us. And God's not going to forsake us via his presence, but God at times may forsake his favor being upon our lives. His presence will remain with us. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? God's presence remains with us. It's not as if God abandons us altogether, but God can retract if we forsake him. God says, okay, then I'm going to forsake my blessing and favor from being upon your life. And if we forsake God and turn away from God, we need to realize that is what we should expect. God's not going to bless our disobedience. And so if we choose to turn away from God at some point and not walk with him or not rely upon him or walk in his ways, to a degree, he will forsake us. He'll say, as long as you do that, I, I'm not pleased with that. So I'm pulling back my hand of favor and blessing upon your life. And he allows us to kind of experience the fruit of our own ways. The Bible says the backslider and heart will be filled with his own ways. God lets us have our own ways for a while. Now, 
You might think Asa, if I were him, would be thinking, why in the world would God give me a warning? I just saw God's power move incredibly. I just saw God defeat a million-man army. Are you kidding me? I'm never going to have a crisis of faith. I just saw God do a miracle. I just cried out to the Lord. I depended upon God. I was a great example for the whole nation. I said, Lord, it doesn't matter how many people we got on that battlefield. Nothing's too hard for you. And just help us, God, and show yourself strong. And then God did it. A miracle happened. And Asa and the people are charged with faith. And they just saw this mighty move of God. And then in the next breath, God sends a prophet to Asa and says, be careful. Be careful that you don't turn from me and not rely upon me. And Asa might be thinking, what are you warning me for? I I don't need that warning. But see, look, whenever God sends a warning across your path, always pay attention. Because God doesn't say anything in vain. And sometimes God may send a prophetic warning, a word of the Lord, something across our path speaks to us something as we're reading in our Bible and, and we're thinking, well, I mean, I'm, that, that warning must not be for me. Maybe it's, maybe it's, I'm supposed to pass it on to somebody today. And it may be that God say, no, because I know that you have the potential to fall. The Bible says when we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. So the Lord warns him, don't forsake me, Asa. Verse 3, for a long time Israel had been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. So notice the priests didn't just do sacrificial activities of the temple, but they also were teaching the people the word of God, the law of the God. It says at that time there had been without God, and one of the indications that God was not involved in the life of the people is there was no teaching priest. There was no spiritual leader teaching the people the word of God. But when in their trouble, verse 4, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times, there was no peace, notice, to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation, city by city. For God, verse 6, troubled them with every adversity. No, it's kind of a summary of the history. When the people were doing things that were right in their own eyes, disobeying God, not honoring God's will or following God's word, it says specifically God was letting them experience turmoil and adversity like we talked about earlier. I mean, it says right there, nation was being destroyed by nation, city by city. And verse six says, for God troubled them with adversity. That is, God was troubling their lives and allowing adversity to get them to kind of wake up. God was purposely making it not easy. God was letting difficulty come into their lives as a consequence so that the adversity would make them, in a sense, say, something's wrong. Why is life so hard? And God would say, hello. Life's hard because you're not following me. Life's hard because you're not letting me love you and help you. And so sometimes God will allow for there to be the sending of adversity to kind of awaken a person or even awaken a nation at times to get our attention if we're doing what's wrong. I love verse 7, great verse, memory verse. But you, verse 7, be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. God tells Asa and the faithful remnant in the midst of these times when others may not have been doing what's right, but you be strong. Others may be doing this or that, but you, he says, you be strong. 
you continue to stay the course and, and have fortitude and a spiritual backbone and continue to be strong and don't let your hands become weakened where you just let go and give up and drop what you're doing and the load that you're carrying and the things that you're engaged in. He says, don't let your hands be weak. He says, because your work will be rewarded. And that's a tremendous temptation for all of us. One of the greatest temptations for us in our spiritual life it is to just grow weary in well-doing. The Bible warns us of that. And we grow weary in well-doing and we lose heart and we give up. We quit. We stop. Oh, I tried that for three months. It got too hard. I quit. And the devil goes right on. And God goes, no, no. Stay on. Stay on. You know, faithfulness, folks, could be defined as a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. You set your eyes on the right course and you keep showing up and you keep doing it when it feels good, when it don't feel good. When you feel good and when you don't feel good. When you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. And you just continue to put one foot in front of the other and you stay strong and you exercise stamina and you continue to keep at it, serving the Lord, reading your Bible, praying, worshiping the Lord, doing those good and right things that he's told you to do, being strong. And the Lord says, your work will be rewarded. God will honor that. The Lord will reward that. The New Testament writer tells us to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me encourage you tonight, if you're finding yourself growing weary or weak, you be strong. Be strong. Don't become cowardly. Don't give up. Don't check out. You be strong and keep doing what's good. You keep your hand to the plow and you trust the Lord to reward you for that faithfulness. He always rewards faithfulness even if nothing else gets rewarded. He'll always reward faithfulness in our lives. Verse 8, And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Obed the prophet, he took courage and he removed the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and the cities. He had taken the mountains of Ephraim, that is up north as well, and he restored the altar of the Lord that was there before the vestibule of the Lord. That is, notice he removed what was wrong again. He's encouraged to again take more reform action. He removes further what's wrong and he also reinstitutes what's right. It says there, verse 8, that he restored the altar of the Lord there at the vestibule of the house of God. That is, he restored the altar representing the life of worship. The altar represented worship and prayer. He restored back worship, restored back prayer. And sometimes we need to take that step as well, we need to be encouraged. Hey, maybe I've grown weak and weary. Sometimes we've got to restore worship. We've got to restore the altar. We've got to restore times of prayer and reinstitute that if perhaps somehow it's been removed or it's been kind of neglected in our lives. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, those in the south who dwelt from Ephraim and Manasseh, and Simeon, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel. That is, they're coming down from the north to the south because, notice, they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They wanted to go down to the south. Because, hey, it may be good up here, Israel, and we may be experiencing prosperity uh, economically, but down there, they're right with the Lord. 
And the people chose to give up what they had materially to be in the place where God was at work and their spiritual lives could be enriched. So they're coming to the southern kingdom. So they gathered, verse 10, at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of the reign of Asa, and they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. So from that great spoil of the war, from chapter 14, they're now making great offerings in dedication to the Lord and their worship, tremendous amounts. Verse 12, and then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. So you want to talk about, again, no pun intended, you know, being deadly serious about seeking the Lord? I understand you can't legislate morality, but you certainly can encourage it when you make a statute like that. Hey, we're going to seek the Lord, and whoever doesn't seek the Lord, it's a crime in our nation. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty, uh, pretty direct there. I don't know if it necessarily would work in today's day and age, but it says the people entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. As they made a commitment. A covenant's a commitment. You know, we don't know much anymore today in our day and age about commitment. We did years ago. We understood what commitment was and covenants were. And dedication was. And in our culture today, we're kind of losing the appreciation and the understanding of what it means to make a commitment. But they made a covenant. Hey, we're making a covenant to seek the Lord. And we're going to honor the commitment and honor the covenant. So verse 14 says, They took an oath before the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath. They were excited to take this oath. For they had sworn with, look at this, all their heart and sought him with all their soul and he was found by them and the Lord gave them again rest all around. So it kind of reminds us of Jesus' words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Here it says they sought the Lord with all their soul and all their heart rejoicing as they sought him. And it says, as they sought him with all their heart and all their soul, verse 15 says, he was found by them. That is, God honored his promise. Back from verse two. If you seek me, God says, you'll find me. I'll reveal myself to you. Again, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 29, God says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. One of the promises that God gives to us is that we, if and as we seek the Lord, He will always reveal Himself to us. We'll always experience more of Him. He's never going to hold back on us. God wants to offer to us everything we want of experience with Him. It really, in many ways, becomes dependent upon how much we want to press into the Lord and see more of Him and know more of Him. It says, as they sought Him, he was found. The Lord wants to be sought. He wants to reveal himself and let us know him better and see him closer. Verse 16, and he also removed Maaka, the mother of Asa the king. Now, actually, this is really actually his grandmother. In the Hebrew, the same term grandmother and mother is often used interchangeable. We know from 1 Kings, this is actually his grandmother, if that really matters. But notice, he removed her from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. Now again, what that obscene image was, was it something that was just vile, something that was just demonic in his appearance? Was it an obscene image in the sense that it was something of connection to Asherah that was just 
pornographic and sensual and inappropriate. Obviously, notice even females wrestle with the same things as males do. We think it's a male problem, but she had made this obscene image on a public level that she had established in the nation as the queen mother with her place of influence. And Asa, being a man of God, notice, because she made an obscene image, he removed her from her place of authority and he cut down her obscene image and crushed it and burned it by the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, it says, the heart of Asa was loyal to the Lord all his days and he also brought into the house of God the things that his father had dedicated and that he himself had dedicated silver and gold and utensils to the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So notice, this is how you can tell when someone is genuinely serious about their commitment personally to the Lord. And we have to understand as well, very different in some ways to try and relate to. In that ancient culture, there was a lot more honor, reverence, and respect that was given towards elders, to patriarchs, to matriarchs. There was a tremendous level of honor in a way that we can't quite even relate to. So for Asa to basically say to his grandmother, who had stature and much more age upon him as one of his elders and kind of maybe the matriarch in the family this time, you know what? You are removed from your position and to basically publicly stand against her, to publicly before the nation shame her and remove her and tear down and destroy her image in something she implemented shows you that this man was tremendously dedicated to the Lord to the degree where he was willing to put his love for the Lord even above his closest of human relationships. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, as he talks about discipleship and taking up our cross and following him, being willing to lose our life, to truly find it and save our life and what he has for us. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Notice, Jesus said, any love, dedication, devotion, or commitment to any human relationship that supersedes our love, dedication, and devotion to Jesus is incorrect. Jesus says, even the closest of relations, father and mother, son or daughter, Jesus says, if you are ever put in a spot where you have to choose, are you going to stand on the side of me and what I say is right and what is honorable and what is accordance with the will of God and the word of God, or are you going to stand with your human affections and emotions and the attachments that exist very closely of lifelong intimate relationships with a mother or a father or your own son or daughter. And if there's ever that kind of friction where you have to choose, Jesus says, you should choose me. You should choose love for me, honoring me, standing with me in support of me, even if that means in some way you have to stand in some way in opposition to the closest and most intimate of human relationships and even family members in your life. Boy, that's devotion. That's allegiance to Jesus. But yet Jesus calls for that. 
you know, in all honesty, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, certainly isn't he worthy of that? Jesus is the one who was crucified for your sins. Jesus was the one who demonstrated love for you that's unconditional. Jesus is the one who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You know, we all know in a fractured and broken world that's sinful, even sometimes the closest people in our lives forsake us. The psalmist says, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. He'll receive me. Some people have been forsaken by their own parents. Some of you who are parents have experienced the heartbreak of, in a sense, your own child forsaking you, cutting you off. Maybe a spouse who's departed and turned away from you. Maybe some other human relationship where you have just been forsaken and you're thinking, how, how could you forsake me? I only have one answer for that. Because they're not Jesus. Only Jesus will never forsake you. Amen. Only Jesus will stand with you and be with you through anything and through everything. And in the end, the one that you're going to long term is Jesus. Stand with Jesus. Sometimes it's hard have to choose to do that, but you will not go wrong if you always choose to honor Jesus and say, Lord, you are worthy of my absolute devotion, my absolute dedication because of what he has shown towards us. Well, we'll close there this evening. Read ahead chapter 16. We see a great connection. Let's stand together. A great connection to what Asa experienced in his great victory and this fantastic, very famous verse comes up in chapter 16 next week as we see that even Asa had feet of clay himself.